Amen. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, grab one from the back table. If you don't own one, please feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. We'd love for you to, uh, to take that and have that. Probably about 26 or 27 years ago, I was youth pastoring in B.C., and there was a, a man in my church, a member of the church, who was a federal uh, a, a warden in a federal correctional institute. And uh, I'd never been to jail by that, at that point, honest. Um, and, and so I thought this would be interesting. He, he invited me to come to the institution where he was a warden for a tour, and I thought that would be an interesting experience. I don't remember exactly what I anticipated going there, but um, I remember being quite shocked by something I experienced while I was at that institution. Uh, Ferndale was a minimum security prison, so I, I assumed that the people who would be there would be you know, guys like my baseball coach when I was a kid. He was a lawyer. He, he went to jail for embezzling funds. You know, guys like that. But when I got there, as we toured through there, at one point in the tour, Ron stopped me and he said, hey, do you remember this name? And he pointed out a fellow and he said, that guy's here for killing his wife. And it jarred me. I mean, I hadn't anticipated that. I'm standing here, and it was quite a high-profile case. If I shared his name, some of you who are older, my age and older, would probably know this name. You'd recognize this. You might remember this story. This violent murder, and, and here in front of me is this man, and I just wasn't prepared for that. It, it, it jarred me. It surprised me. I was standing there in front of a murderer. That, for me, was a first. I, I, it left an impression on me. I, I, I knew that I was guilty of doing some bad stuff, some stuff that the Bible calls sin, but that just struck me as bad to a whole nother level. This morning, as we continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be looking at uh, a section of a sermon where Jesus speaks about murder, the command, uh, you shall not murder. In our initial sense, as we hear these words, it might be, hey, I'm good, that's not my thing. We do some bad things, but, but you know, it's things that God calls sin, but, but when it comes to murder, we're good. But what we are about to discover is that when we rightly understand God's desire and God's word here, you and I will find ourselves standing in the company of murderers. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by the announcement of the good news. Jesus went out proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. That in his coming, a whole new order was breaking into the world. The future was spilling into the present. Heaven was invading earth. Uh, I've been contending throughout this series that when the good news takes root in a person's heart, something happens, and that something that happens is described in this sermon of Jesus. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Uh, God begins to change men and women, young and old, and produce in us new character traits. He produces new ambitions, gives us a new sense of purpose, produces new behaviors in us. We become gospelized, good news people. I have been arguing that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us a new law. 
This is not the, the, the law cranked up, the law on steroids. No, this is not a new set of rules. Rather, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is painting for us a, a picture of this new kind of humanity, this gospelized humanity. This is what people begin to look like when the gospel, the good news, takes root in our hearts. This is what people begin to look like when the Holy Spirit is having his way in us. Two weeks ago when I last spoke, we took a bird's eye view of a larger section of chapter 5, verses 21 to the end of 48. And, and we did that because it's a section that contains six smaller parts of the text. And, and I wanted us to get the, the view of the forest. Remember I talked details versus big picture. I wanted us to get the big picture, get the forest first before we dig into the details so that the details don't lead us astray. There's some things that we need to understand about this whole section if we're going to understand these smaller parts uh, correctly. I contended that there are some important truths, some important principles that we need to bear in mind. And so uh, we looked at those uh, two weeks ago. And, and here, uh, some, of, some of those were that, that we need to understand as we come to this section, these six parts, that these are really illustrations of what gospelized living looks like. Uh, we need to understand that that it's not just about the letter only, but about the spirit of what Jesus is saying. A mere wooden understanding and compliance here will lead us to miss the point. Second, I, I said it's not just about our actions, not just about what's happening externally, but God cares about what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. Third, that this isn't oppressive, but freeing. That God's law isn't this arbitrary set of rules, but rather this is his, his law reflects his character, and we were made to be his image bearers, and so as we obey him, we're becoming more human. We're becoming free to be who God made us to be. That, that what we encounter here is not just negative, not just what we're not to do, but positively what we are to do. And then lastly, that, that these things that Jesus says are not an end in themselves. God does not desire slavish Reluctant obedience. God wants our hearts. He wants us to delight ourselves in Him, in knowing Him, and in obeying Him. Because He's created us for Him. To look like Him. So with those things in mind, I invite you to turn to the first of those six illustrations that we look at today. Verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Here's what I want to do with you in the time we have remaining this morning. There are two questions that I want to ask. First is, what is Jesus telling us 
not to do? What, what is the negative thing he's saying? I, I don't want you doing this. And then secondly, positively, what is Jesus telling us to do? So begin with what he's telling us not to do. I, I've been contending throughout this uh, ser- series, and I'll continue to contend, that the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus cranking up the Old Testament law. This is not Jesus uh, giving us the law on steroids. It's not Jesus giving us a new set of rules. Rather, it is Jesus painting a picture of what we begin to look like when we believe the good news of his grace, of his forgiveness, that he transforms us, he changes us, he produces in us new character, new ambitions, new, a new purpose, and new behaviors. We need to bear that in mind as we dive into the details. Our passage begins, verse 21, where Jesus references the sixth commandment. Uh, we find the commandments in two places, in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, the sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. Uh, here on the lips of Jesus, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, though the penalty for murder is not spelled out in those lists of the Ten Commandments, It is spelled out elsewhere in the law. For example, in Numbers 35, we read, anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer. In fact, even earlier, before God gave the Ten Commandments, it was clear God had revealed uh, the the penalty for murder in, in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. The, the grievousness of this sin of murder, of taking the life of another person, one created in the image of God, is clear. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and here's the penalty. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scribes, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, they would have no problem in signing off on all of this that Jesus has just said. They, they, they knew what the law said, they knew what the penalty was for murder, Uh, But for them, it ended there. According to their understanding, the sixth commandment was restricted to the deed of homicide. Uh, Provided you did not spill human blood, you were good. You had kept the commandment. You were righteous. But Jesus Jesus doesn't stop there. He, He disagrees with the conclusion that they've come to. Their understanding of the sixth commandment falls desperately short of the spirit of the command. According to Jesus, one can stop short of murder and yet be horribly guilty of violating this commandment. Look with me at what Jesus says. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in, the danger, in danger of the fire of hell. This is a massive departure from the common understanding of the Sixth Commandment. This is a massive departure from what the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day understood uh, and, and from what they were teaching, from what the people understood. Let's dig into some of the details what Jesus says here. Look with me again at verse 22. Jesus makes three statements. First, he says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Just immediately before that, he says, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Same word here. 
Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus asserts that anger alone is a violation of the spirit of this commandment, that it puts you in a place where you are under judgment. Second statement, Jesus says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. Raka is an Aramaic term of contempt. It's an insult. Translated as literally as we can, it probably something like empty head. It's an insult of a person's intelligence. A, a, a modern day equivalent would maybe be something like bonehead or nimwit. Third, Jesus says, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. The word translated fool here is the Greek word moros, which, from which we get moron. Again, insulting a person's intelligence. It would seem that according to Jesus that anger and insults, name-calling, is on par with, with murder. It, it, like murder, it, it leaves us deserving punishment. It leaves us guilty. And, and Jesus makes that undeniably clear in what follows because he identifies here for all of them the penalty, the consequence for those guilty of each of these things. Anger leaves you subject to judgment. Uh, calling someone raka means you're going to face the court. Again, judgment. Uh, calling someone a fool puts you in the danger, danger of the fires of hell. Gehenna. Gehenna comes from uh, the Hebrew phrase, Valley of Hinnom. There was a valley south of Jerusalem. And that valley was a place where centuries earlier, some of Israel's kings, in their idolatrous worship, sacrificed humans to the pagan god Moloch. By Jesus' day, it was the city dump, and it, it, was, it was burning and smoking and smoldering, and so it had become this euphemism for the place of judgment, Gehenna, hell. A, a question needs to be asked at this point. Is Jesus laying down a progression of sins and similarly a progression of punishments? That if you do this, this happens. If you do this, this happens. If you do this, hell. It, 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 some have sought to interpret it that way. And I want to contend this morning that that actually makes uh, little sense. Remember, Jesus here is not giving us a new law, a new set, uh, a new to-do list and to-don't list. Hey, here's some sins you shouldn't commit in order from bad to really bad. And here's the penalties from bad to, to worse. Is that what Jesus is doing here? I want to say no. This, this is rhetoric. Jesus is making a point, but, but we, get, we get lost and, and misread it if that's how we, we take it. Think with me for a moment. If we take this in a literalistic way, a wooden interpretation of this, then, then as long as I don't use these words, as long as I don't call people these names, and as long as I can do that without anger in my heart, which is a little harder, I'll admit, but... But I, don't, I, I can't speak for you, but I know lots of other derogatory words that I could call someone. If, not just could, that I have called people. Right? Like, if we take this in a strictly literal way, don't use these words, I'm like, okay, I got some other ones I can use. Right? Like, that, that's, that's to miss the point. This is rhetoric. Jesus is simply multiplying examples to drive home his point. Anger and insults towards others who are creating the image of God, name-calling, that merits divine judgment. That falls outside of God's desire for how we treat people. 
that falls outside of God's desire for what goes on in our hearts. Now, before we move on to our second question, what does Jesus call us to do positively, there are a couple other questions that probably have come up in your minds. One, one is, is all anger evil? Is all anger wrong? Is it all sin? I mean, is that what Jesus is saying? After all, didn't Jesus get angry? Jesus actually called the Pharisees fools. What do we do with that? Is Jesus guilty of being wildly inconsistent? <laughs> well, Jennifer, we might have a surprise. Martin Lloyd-Jones asked this question, how can Jesus issue these prohibitions at this point and then use such language himself? Two things need to be noted. First, this categorical antithetical way of speaking is typical of much of Jesus' teaching, of much of rabbinical teaching in that day. And it's a rhetorical device, a way of communicating, a way of making a point. Let me read a verse to you from Luke. Here's what we read in Luke 14. Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You need to hate your wives, your husbands, your kids, your father, your mother, is that the point Jesus is making? It's, it's not. It, it's a rhetorical device. His point is your love, your allegiance to me needs to surpass that of any other love and allegiance. That's the point. It's rhetoric. We, we need to understand it that way. Jesus calls us to love our, and honor our, our father and mother, to love our spouses, our kids, our families. D.A. Carson, about that text in Luke, writes this, hate is not to be taken absolutely. Jesus is saying, rather, that love and allegiance must be given in a preeminent way to himself alone. Rivals must not be allowed to usurp what is not their due. And so when we turn to this text in Matthew, we need to hear this. Here, Carson writes this about our text. He says, it's important to let this antithetical and categorical form of statement speak let it speak in all its stark absoluteness before we allow it to be tempered by broader considerations. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus relates anger to murder. Let that relationship stand before going on to observe that some anger, including anger in Jesus' own life, is not only justifiable but good. We, we need to hear this. We need to hear the point that Jesus is making because here's what we need to understand. Jesus' anger was was judicial. It was, it was anger towards sin, towards injustice, towards unrighteousness. And in contrast to that, I'll speak for myself, most of my anger is more about me being offended or inconvenienced. Right? Most of my anger, if I'm honest with you, I'm angry because someone makes me late. Or I'm angry because my kids did something and it inconvenienced my plans. They interrupted a hockey game, right? Like, I trust I'm not the only one. You don't have to raise hands. But, but our anger, our anger generally is because we've been offended. We've been negatively impacted. We've been slighted. We've been insulted. Some, I just about used the name, some jerk cut me off, right? Like, well, Jesus didn't say we can use that word. 
You've heard me. So to summarize, before we move on to our second question, the religious leaders of Jesus' day defined murder simply as the act of homicide. Jesus defines it far more broadly to include the attitudes of our hearts and our responses, uttering names and insults towards others, that, that those things that fall short of actual physical violence and physical murder yet leave us guilty. What Jesus wants us to hear, what he wants us to know, what he wants us to understand is that his disciples, those who hear the gospel and whom the gospel is taking root, are to be transformed into those who don't harbor anger, into those who, who don't utter insults and call names. That's what we're not to do. That's the answer to the first question. Let's turn to the second question. What are we to do positively? What is Jesus saying in that regard? He's not done addressing us yet. He, He has expressed what we're not to do. And now he tells us what we are to do. And he he does that by providing two illustrations that we find in the last four verses of our text. Merely refraining from the physical act of murder does not equate with obedience to the sixth commandment. That should be clear to us. Anger and insults and personal animosity towards others renders one guilty. Jesus does not simply say, don't be angry, don't call names, don't insult people. Again, the law of God, God's desire for us is... It's not merely this boundary marker that we're not to cross. As long as you do X, Y, and Z and you don't do these three things, you're good. That's a boundary understanding of the law. The law of God, God's commands, his, what he calls us to do, comes out of his character. We are to reflect his likeness. If it's, if it's about boundaries, then we simply need to find out where that line is. And then we can get as close to that line as we want without going over. Remember last week I, I shared that illustration when I was in high school and a speaker came and talked about the, the five don'ts for dating. And there's ways of, okay, we won't do those. Like it's, it's not about this boundary that we're simply not to cross. That's what's going on on the occasion when Jesus shares the story of the, uh, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. Remember, uh, an expert in the law came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what, what do you think? What does the law say? And he says, I'm supposed to love God with my whole being, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, you've answered well. Go do that. And he's, he, he wants to justify himself is what Luke tells us. In, in an attempt to justify himself, he asks Jesus one more question. Who's my neighbor? You know what that's about, right? That's, that's about saying, who do I not have to love? Where's the line? And Jesus tells that story to say, hey, there's no line. Any person in front of you, any person in need, everyone, even your enemy, even a hated Gentile, a Samaritan, sorry, is your neighbor. What we see in these last verses of our text is that Jesus not only calls us to avoid these things, to not be angry, to not insult, to not call names, Jesus calls his people, the gospelized, to take positive steps to make things right in relationships. Listen, verse 23 and 24. This addresses specifically relationships with other believers, with Christians. 
Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Just refraining from anger and insults in one's heart, anger in one's heart and insults is not enough. That's not the goal of the gospel. Jesus desires more. He desires that we, as the gospelized, would take every step possible to seek reconciliation, to seek healing in broken relationships. That is our aim with intentionality, with urgency. John Stott writes this. He, he puts this into our own cultural context. He says, if you are in church, and I'm going to read his language. I, I don't... We call this a worship gathering for a reason. Well, quick, quick bunny trail. Because I don't want the church. The church isn't about providing religious services. We are the church. You never go to church. We are the church. So I want you to understand that, but I'll use his language. If you are in church in the middle of a service of worship and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait till the service has ended. Seek out your brother and ask his forgiveness. First go, then come. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your worship. Do, do you see the danger that we face? To think that our activity in worshiping God, in serving God, in whatever form that takes, that somehow that, that's more important or that covers up sin elsewhere in our lives or broken relationships elsewhere if i'm worshiping god if i'm bringing him you know my offerings and you know i'm serving as a greeter or whatever it is we're doing jesus says in no uncertain terms that we should keep god waiting that we should keep god waiting stop what you're doing walk out of that gathering Go be reconciled. Do whatever it takes to have a whole, healthy, restored relationship with your brother or your sister who is angry at you. Keep me waiting. Go do that first. Then come and worship. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Far more important to, to be reconciled than to discharge a religious duty. Without the former, the latter becomes pretense and sham. Forget about worship at this moment. If there's brokenness in a relationship, go, go make it right. Go seek to be restored. I know so many stories. I was just reminded this week, a friend told me about a church he used to attend and said there were people in that church who hadn't spoken to one another for 20 years. 20 years. And whether it's 20 years or since Tuesday, the point is this. Jesus wants his people to be people who pursue healthy relationships, reconciliation, restoration of what is broken. And he says, put worship on pause, keep me waiting, and go do that. Go pursue restoration. 
Let's look at the final two verses. Those, those two verses really look at if it's a brother or sister, if it's someone in Christ, if it's a fellow believer, fellow disciple. Here, this is about an enemy, verse 25 and 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This second illustration reiterates the same point, this time in the context of of enemies, if you will. That we, as the gospelized, those in whom the good news is taking root, those in whom the Spirit of God is having His way, are to be those who pursue restored relationships. There is to be a sense of urgency. Do not put this off. Seek healing in those broken places. Remember, Jesus is not here giving us a new law, a new to-do list. He's not giving us the old law cranked up. He is describing men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, in whom the gospel has taken root. The good news that through faith in Christ and what was accomplished on the cross that we are forgiven, that we are washed and cleansed, that, that through faith in him not only are we forgiven, but we are clothed with his perfection. We are, we are clothed with his righteousness. The good news that in, the coming of his, in his coming, the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world. The good news that, that through his redemptive work and the, the power of his indwelling spirit, God is forming a new humanity. He is transforming our lives. He's shaping us to be gospelized men and gospelized women, transformed by his grace. And so here's a profoundly important truth. Harboring anger in our hearts, spewing names and insults at others, are utterly incongruent with a life shaped by the gospel. When we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus begins to transform us. And if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, the Beatitudes share with us our new character, gospelized character. Do you remember some of the Beatitudes, some of the things that that Christ, by his gospel, produces in us? Blessed are those who mourn, right? We we mourn over our own sin and and the sin of others, the brokenness of our world. We, We mourn over broken relationships. And in him we will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Righteousness is the right relatedness of all things, the the right relatedness of every relationship. So so broken relationships pain us. And we long for, we hunger and thirst for for right relatedness of, of every relationship that's broken. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have had an encounter with the Prince of Peace, who have peace with God, and who now run out into the fray, into the chaos, into the conflict, seeking to announce, pronounce, and and bring the peace of Christ into every area of brokenness in the world. You see, if, if Christ is forming us in that way, it is utterly incongruent for us to harbor anger, to hurl insults and call names. It just doesn't fit. It's it's not who we are. It's not who Christ is forming us to be. To avoid the physical act of murder, but to allow anger to dwell in our hearts, 
to, to avoid the physical act of murder, but to ignore broken relationships in our lives is to miss the heart of God. None of us, as far as I know, none of us here are guilty of murder. But that does not mean that we're innocent. Have you harbored anger in your heart towards others? Is there anger in your heart even this morning towards others? Have you called names and uttered insults? Directed at men and women created in the image of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord, loved and redeemed by your Savior. We stand in the company of murderers, guilty and deserving God's judgment, except for one glorious fact, the good news that in Christ, that on the cross, Christ suffered for us, that Christ bore the penalty that was ours. He drank every last drop of God's judgment for your sin and mine, and that in Him we are forgiven, that through faith in Him we receive grace, through faith in Him we are clothed with His righteousness. We would all be guilty before him except for the glorious fact of the gospel. Jesus begins this sermon with the, that, that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they come bankrupt, spiritually empty-handed with nothing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember here, remember, Jesus is not giving us a new law. Jesus is not telling us how to be saved. He is painting a picture of who he is forming us to be as those whom he has saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Jesus, for this picture. We thank you for the gospel that through your death for us, Jesus, we are saved. And we thank you here for your this picture of who you are forming us to be. And so, Jesus, I pray for every person here. Lord, that for those who don't yet know you, those who have not repented and believed, Lord, that even now you might move in their hearts and bring them to a place of faith. Lord, I pray that in every one of our hearts you would bring conviction where there is guilt for anger and insults, things that are far from what you desire for us. And Lord, that you would shape us to be men and women who with urgency and with joy pursue restored relationships. Lord, because you have done that for us. So Lord, have your way in us, we pray. Amen.